0: good to be with you this morning be able to share with you this morning this message I'm going to share with you this morning and we're trying to correct all that feedback you're hearing they'll get it done here in a minute but uh, this particular message is way out of my comfort zone and <clears throat> my friend David over here who's been a pastor for many years and him and his wife Barbara visiting this morning and I saw him walk in I thought Oh, I wish he would come another Sunday, because he could do this message far better than me. He he, and uh, we met them through our small group in Edmond. They were our neighbors. And since our group is branched now, uh, they're in Waska's group, uh, Dan Waska's group. But uh, I'm going to do my best to share this message with you this morning. And, and really, all I'm going to do is sort of point you in a direction uh, with a... 30 minutes I have here. I'm just going to be able to point you in a direction. I'm going to pass something around for you to take a look at. Uh, this is, a, this is a, I, I think, this is the Hebrew Old Testament. And I'm just going to pass it around and let you take a look at this because uh, I want you just to, you don't hold on to it very long and then pass it to the next person, but just look through it. And uh, it'll make more sense to you as I get into the message why I'm having you do this. So that's the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. And then this is the Greek uh, New Testament. And so uh, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And and uh, Hebrew or Aramaic, really not sure. But And then here's the New Testament in Greek, which is... Uh, we're pretty sure that the original was written in Greek and so just want you to pass it through the auditorium when you get back to the back bring it down and you'll you'll understand while I'm doing that uh, during the course of the message well the title of this new series is intellectual honesty and you know everything begins with definitions and if we're not on the same page when it comes to definitions we we're not going to end up you know really agreeing on anything and so I want to help you understand here at the beginning what intellectual honesty is first of all intellectual honesty is it's something that's very important to us as far as character is concerned it's a virtue and it's a method of problem solving is what intellectual honesty is and it's characterized by being unbiased and then having an honest attitude and an effort to discover the truth now what's the problem with that virtue i don't know about you but i have a real difficult time being unbiased i i freely admit that that's a challenge for me to be unbiased and so many times i may hear something and instead of you know Taking it into consideration, I just sort of rule it out, and not even take it into consideration, and don't do the and don't make the effort that I need to make to evaluate what I believe, so that I can determine whether or not I need to change what I believe. And so, intellectual honesty, when it comes to religion, it's demonstrated by three things that I'm going to share with you to begin with. Intellectual honesty is demonstrated by deciding that your current beliefs will not interfere with the pursuit of truth my current beliefs i'm not going to let them interfere with the pursuit of truth and then secondly intellectual honesty is by courageously examining relevant facts and information even though new discoveries may contradict what you have believed and it takes courage to do that doesn't it to delve into something and consider something with an From an unbiased perspective understanding that this really might contradict what i have believed and then intellectual honesty is deciding to change what you believe based on the evidence deciding what you uh, will believe or deciding to change what you believe based on the evidence now what i'm convinced of and i'm persuaded of is that if if you're intellectually honest and you examine the right information, you will agree with me that the Bible is reliable and that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. I honestly believe that. If you will be intellectually honest, I believe you will come to that conclusion. Now, you may not receive Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. Certainly, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, and you agreeing with his work that may not happen but I do believe that if you'll be intellectually honest that uh, you would come to the conclusion based on the right information that the Bible is reliable and that Jesus is who he claimed to be the son of God and so that's why I want to start this series moving forward here for all of our speakers that'll be speaking through the month of April I just want to challenge you to be intellectually honest Now, that's very difficult in the world that we live in. Uh, Do you know any politicians that are intellectually honest? I mean, sometimes you just wonder how in the world people come up with the conclusions they reach based upon the information. You might think, well, they just don't have the right information. Well, the truth is Maybe they're not courageous enough to pursue the right information. And they're going to allow their current belief system to keep them from courageously pursuing the right information. And so it's very challenging in the society that we we live in to be intellectually honest. Now, I want to give you a couple of disclaimers at the start of this series. Uh, First of all, I'm not going to be able to give you enough information in the next few minutes uh, to answer all your questions and resolve every intellectual problem you might have on the question, is, is the Bible reliable? I won't be able to do that. You're going to have to do your own homework in order to come up with more information. So I'm not definitely not skilled enough in a short a period of time in order to think that I'm going to persuade you to change what you believe. But one good book that helped me a long time ago was a book written by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And so if you're interested in pursuing more information about what I'm talking to you today, that would be a good starting place. Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. My second disclaimer is I'm not going to be able to perform... A miraculous sign to convince you that what I believe about God is what you should believe. Now, I, I, I wish I could promise that, that I would be able to do that. Now, God still performs miraculous signs. That's what I believe. But I'm not going to be able to whip one out and convince you that uh, the Bible is reliable by something that I'm going to be able to do today. As far as I know, that's not going to happen. And so I want to give that disclaimer as well. I wish I could do that. So what we're going to try to do in this series is I'm going to try to persuade you, and what others are going to try to do is persuade you that what we believe about the Bible and about God is the truth based upon circumstantial evidence. Now, circumstantial evidence in law is evidence not drawn from direct observation of an event. And so when we talk about the Bible, there's no one here that we could point to other than the Holy Spirit of God that directly observed the events that are in the Bible. Circumstantial evidence in a trial is evidence that does not come directly from an eyewitness or a participant. To obtain circumstantial evidence, we must have the right information and right logic to remove any reasonable doubt and then based upon circumstantial evidence we can make a decision beyond reasonable doubt uh... an example example of circumstantial evidence is dna evidence which really didn't exist very much i guess early in my lifetime and now it's the rave as far as reaching conclusions about who's guilty of various crimes dna evidence but that's an that's a uh... That's an example of circumstantial evidence. People can be convicted for murder even when there are no eyewitnesses if there's DNA evidence, circumstantial evidence. People are being released from prison after being convicted for murder when new DNA evidence has been discovered that proves that they were not the killer and they did not commit the crime, but someone else did based upon DNA evidence. What we want to do is give you circumstance substantial evidence that the Bible is reliable this morning and that Jesus is God moving forward we believe that this evidence is enough to demand a verdict on your part I believe that if you're intellectually honest that you will conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that the Bible is true and Jesus is God based upon the weight of the circumstantial evidence that you're not just gonna hear today but what you're gonna hear over the next four weeks. And so today we start with answering the question, is the Bible reliable? And as we, we start that uh, particular subject, I remember after I became a, 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 a Christian, uh, if you would ask me that question, I would have said, well, sure it's reliable. And you would have said, well, why is it reliable? I would say, well, I don't know why the Bible's reliable. I wouldn't have a clue but i believe it's reliable and maybe my answer would have been because i've read it and it says it's reliable you know it wasn't long after i became a christian that someone shared with me second timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 all scripture is inspired by god and it's profitable for teaching reproof correction training and righteousness that the man of god may be adequate equipped for every good work and so that verse was shared with me, and if you said, is the Bible reliable, I would have said, well, yeah, it's reliable. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. Well, what that is called is, is basically cyclical, cyclical logic, where I'm actually using the source that I'm trying to prove reliable to convince you that it's reliable. And I, and I understand that. That is a good thing for me as a believer to know. That this is what the bible says about its own reliability but you know for those who don't believe that's not a good answer to them as far as why is the bible reliable you know our knowledge of history comes from stories preserved in literature And i want you to get the bigger picture as we start here about how that history has been passed down to us going back hundreds and even thousands of years how has history been passed down to us well before there was written literature there was just oral tradition in other words thousands of years ago when someone wanted to pass their history on to their families or they wanted to pass the history of a people group on to the next generation how did they do it well there was only one way to do it thousands of years ago they told oral stories and people learned the oral stories and the oral stories just got passed down from one generation to another generation writing didn't actually come into uh, history until around 3000 or so BC. And so all of the history before 3000 BC was primarily being carried down from oral tradition. And then writing began. And when writing began, primarily the way writing was done, if you wanted someone to know through writing what you were talking about you just drew a picture of it now can you imagine how long it would write a book drawing pictures you know but really that first writing that's what took place people started drawing you know images in order to try to communicate through writing the story they wanted to tell well then things developed and uh, before you know it uh, Different people groups in different ancient civilizations began to develop their own systems of writing. And that's where you started to get written literature and history being recorded in writing going back 3,000 years. Now, ancient history, as a term, refers to the collection of past events in history from the beginning of writing and recorded human history in the 3000 to 5 BC to 500 AD period so when I say ancient history I'm going back to 3000 BC and I'm talking about the time period of 3000 BC to uh, 500 AD and remember now we're talking about the history of many different ancient civilizations okay and there was no internet there wasn't any computer there wasn't any printing presses you know and so many of these ancient civilizations were isolated from one another and so what was going on in one ancient civilization wasn't known to the other ancient civilization you know we don't live that way today if I asked you you know well what's going on right now in North Korea (laughs) well many of you could stand up and passionately tell me all kinds of stories what's going on in another part of the world well that wasn't possible then and so these ancient stories that were being written down in literature they were confined they were confined to these different uh, ancient civilizations and and people groups now from ancient civilizations there are all kinds of stories in ancient literature and so if you look at uh, the ancient history of the ancient civilization of china they've got their own set of stories or you you go to egypt and they've got their own set of stories or you go into certain people groups in south america and they've got their own set of stories now some of these stories were written to be fact. I mean, they are written to be history. And some were written even then just to be fiction. And some are a combination of fact and fiction. Now, can you relate to that? You, you watch a movie and you know it's fiction. You watch another movie and it's a documentary and it's being portrayed as historical fact. And then you'll watch a movie and it'll say, This movie is based upon true events. Now what that means is, is there's a few true events, and everything else in the story is the imagination of the person who wrote the story, and they're filling in all of these gaps. So it's a combination of fact and fiction. Well, as ancient literature texts are discovered all over the world through archaeology, then what happens is that they are subjected to these tests by critics to determine if the text is reliable Is it talking about fact? Is it talking about history? Is it talking about fiction? Is it talking about a combination of uh, fact and fiction? Can you understand how difficult that is? To really draw a conclusion On whether or not something from one of these ancient civilizations is fact or fiction or a combination of the both and you only have a limited number of resources to make that determination well to make this determination critics use at least three forms of criticism One of them's called textual criticism, another one's called historical criticism, and then there's scientific criticism. Now, how would you like to have a job, and the name of the job was critic? Yeah, I'm a critic. You know, we understand from film critics what that means. The guys are movie critics, and we look at their ratings, right? And so some people have jobs, and their job is to be a critic. But in order to be a critic, they're not just trying to prove that something is not legitimate. They're trying to discover the truth about these historical documents that are being uncovered. Well, first of all, let's talk about textual criticism. Now, textual criticism, one of the goals of textual criticism is to determine how do we know that what we're reading right now is what was written by the ancients so i'm passing around to you the hebrew old testament and the greek new testament okay and i know you can't read it but i want you to get a feel for those who wrote it and what it looked like originally is what i wanted you to get a feel for okay well how do we know that's what is written in those books that i just passed around to you even though you can't read them how do you know that what we're reading to now in our English translations was what was written in the original documents. That's called textual criticism. Now, when people developed a system of writing to express their language, they began to record their history through stories. But preserving the original ancient stories in writing was very difficult. Think about that for a moment you have writing to develop and now you're writing these documents how do you preserve it how do you make it last unless a story was engraved in stone or on clay manuscripts were very fragile they were very perishable and manuscripts could be lost and so to share manuscripts and preserve them it required this tedious process of making a copy of it can you imagine that just imagine steve i just handed you that hebrew bible old testament and i said steve your job now is to copy that document every jot and every tittle that's in that hebrew bible that's your job when can you get it for me you know when can you have it done how long would that take you steve and you're using a better ink pen than they were using you know for their writing mechanism and so just imagine that you have an original document, and the only way to reproduce it is by hand copy. How many documents do you think were going to be reproduced quickly in that way? Well, the answer to that is not very many. Manuscripts could be uh, could be lost. There was no printing press, like I said earlier, to accurately reproduce the literature. You know, when you turn in a Like this last week I got a connect card and I looked at the phone number And I looked at it and I said now is that a five or is that a two Because I want to get it right because I'm planning on calling that visitor to our church And this is just one connect card can you imagine an entire manuscript or book and you're trying to copy it exactly as it written don't you think that in the copies there's going to be some mistakes made well sure there's going to be some mistakes made in any kind of copying over time there's going to be some some mistakes made people are flawed people write poorly letters and numbers are sometimes just difficult for us to decipher And so there's many important factors that textual critics use to determine if what was originally written is what we're reading today. And here are two of the more significant methods that they use. How do textual critics evaluate that what we're reading today is what was the original? And these are not foolproof by any means. First of all, it's the age of the document that we currently have in other words if we don't have the original document we have a copy of it how much time has passed between the when the original was written and the copy was made well the closer the copy was to the original the more reliable the textual critic would say was what he was reading but you know what they're talking about in ancient history They're talking about from the time of the original to the copy that we have. They're talking about one year? No. Ten years? No. A hundred years? No. We're talking about hundreds of years from the copy that have been discovered from the original document. So how many mistakes could have been made from the time the original was written and then you have sequential copies being made until the copy that we currently have that we consider the oldest copy in existence of that document. Are you getting the picture? Okay, it's important that you do. So textual critics look at the age of the document. Then they look at the number of ancient texts that have been found. You see, the more copies that are found of ancient texts, the more critics can compare them to see if there's serious contradictions, omissions, additions, and errors. Does that make sense? Let's say that you've got now 100 copies that have been discovered by archaeologists. So what do they do? They look at each one of those ancient copies and they go over it and and they go over it to see if there's contradictions between all of the copies. And, And so by basically looking at all of these different copies and going over them tediously, wouldn't you want that job as a textual critic? They go, I think this is as close as it can be to what the original guy wrote. That's how they come to that conclusion based upon the numbers of copies. Well, how is uh, the current Bible that we read today to be viewed based on textual criticism? First of all, the age of the biblical text. Well, with regards to the Old Testament, the text known as the Dead Sea Scrolls were written during the first century B.C. to the first century A.D. I'm talking about within a 200-year period here, okay? That's the way these guys talk when they're talking about ancient history. And they don't consider that to be a long time. I consider that to be forever. And so what we have is the Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest text, and they're all copies from the original text. And so, those Dead Sea Scrolls, how, if, we, if they were written in the first century B.C. to the first century A.D., how many years are they away from the original? Well, Moses lived in 1500 B.C., right? And he wrote, according to our Bibles, the first five books of the Old Testament. And they consider that to be close as far as the age of the document from the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's pretty good when it's compared to other ancient documents. They go, it's, that's probably reliable. They consider that many years to be reliable on the age of the text. Now, with regards to the New Testament, they also consider it to be reliable because the ancient New Testament texts that we have have been discovered were written as early as the second century A.D. And so that's like, oh, wow, that's between 100 and 200 years from the time the original letters were written like by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Gospels. Here we have these copies that go back that far. What about the number of biblical texts? Well, in the case of the Old Testament, using only the Dead Sea Scrolls, get this, there is a collection of 800 to 900 documents in that one collection you want to compare that to other ancient documents and the copies and fragments of it it's it just blows them all out of the water and that's why the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was such a tremendous thing in fact in the Dead Sea Scrolls there's over 50,000 individual pieces in all and they're still trying to decipher them In case of the New Testament, we have thousands of complete manuscripts and multiple thousands more fragments available. There are more than 5,000 copies of the entire New Testament or extensive portions of it. In addition, we have several thousand more fragments or smaller portions of the New Testament. Now, if you want to compare that to some other historical documents, maybe you're familiar with Homer's Iliad. Well... That's considered to be a reliable document, even though it's it's a fictional book. It's it's a reliable document. The textual critics feel like that what we're reading now was what he wrote. You know how many copies they have? Well, there's only 700 copies. So you have 5,000 copies of the New Testament, you have 700 copies of the Iliad. There's only a handful of copies of any one work of Aristotle, but textual critics believe that what we're reading now of Aristotle is what was written in the original. So the Old Testament and New Testament passed the test of textual criticism with regards to the age and number of texts that have been discovered. And textual critics are confident that what we're reading today is very close to the original except for minor errors that do not have any major effect on the stories or the content. So if there are some errors, what they're saying there is, yeah, the copyist made some errors. And as Christians, what we believe is that the Bible is inerrant in its original writing. <laughs> I, I don't believe that all the people who copied it have done it perfectly. But what we read today, we do believe that it is very, very close to the original writings that were given. Now, the second way it's, the truth is determined is whether the Bible is reliable It's historical criticism. You know, this one, too, is, is amazing to me. Two of us can watch the same event and have different perspective on what just happened. Isn't that the truth? And so, just because I write down what I witnessed does not make it history. I may have the wrong perspective. You may have the right perspective. And we witness the same event. The goal of historical criticism is to collaborate the accuracy of the ancient stories. If one author writes an account, are there other authors that collaborate and say the same thing? Now, this is in modern history because there's so many authors writing books that cover the same events. In other words, if Jesus doesn't return for many, many years and people are looking back on this time period, the historical critics are going to have a lot to work with. Because there's going to be authors all over the place that have written about World War II, for example. And if they're wanting to get the facts right years from now, do a new documentary, they'll have a lot of resources to draw from. Ancient historical critics feel fortunate if they have one complete text from just one author for an ancient time period. Now, one of the remarkable things about the Jews is like they were ahead of their time in lots of different ways. And this is one of them. The Bible was written by Jews, uh, probably with the exception of Luke, who was a Gentile who wrote the gospel of Luke in the New Testament. And uh, I believe that was ordained by God, that he was one of those gospel writers. But the Bible was written by Jews, and it's loaded with historical information. The Bible is just full of historical information. There are incredible lists of genealogies. For example, here's a list of genealogies you know you have you have all of these generations from jesus back to abraham and in fact you have in one gospel account the genealogy of jesus back to adam now who would do that there's not another book like that that contains that kind of genealogy you know i can trace my family tree back seven generations to where my you know, that grandfather, who was Jacob I, by the way, came over here from Switzerland. And then that's it. You know, who could preserve this and put it in a book? Well, the Jews did. They did. And so you have these incredible genealogies. And here's from Jesus to Adam. Put it up there. There's Jesus to Adam. It's in the Bible, a genealogy like that. The family tree of Jesus is listed all the way back to. To Adam and then you have all of these time periods that are mentioned in the Bible and and based on those time periods we can create timelines do you understand how incredible that is when it comes to ancient history that there is a ancient history book that has genealogies and then all of these time periods and then you have all of these stories and in the stories they specifically identify the names of the people and who their fathers were it's like we want you to know this is not fiction you know so here's all of this history and not only are there names of people but there's names of places and there's names of objects you know if I was an author and I was trying to deceive someone into believing something I would not put that kind of information in my book I would leave out all of this historical information in order to try to deceive you. Are there ways to collaborate the accuracy of the ancient stories in the Bible? If one author writes an account, are there other authors that recorded the same stories? Now here we go back to the Jews again where they were really ahead of themselves (laughs) and ahead of civilization in general in this way. One of the most interesting things about the bible that old testament i just passed around that was in hebrew and that new testament that was in greek is that we call it one book but in reality it's 66 books and 40 40 different authors of that one book there's only one author of the book of mormon there's only one author of the Quran. But for the Bible, there's 40 different authors that make up that wrote these 66 books. And it's interesting. Jesus is the founder of our faith, and he didn't write anything. Do you know how unusual that is that the founder of the faith would not write anything? other people had to record what he wrote that sure didn't happen to joseph smith and it didn't happen to muhammad they wrote their stuff the bible is a book that contains 66 books with 40 different authors and the books were collected and made into one book through a process that's called canonization now one of the reasons for canonization is here's where the Jews were ahead of their time again is they understood the Jews understood that in order to collaborate stories you needed different authors isn't that incredible and so what they did is they brought together the authors 40 of them and basically you have the same message from Genesis all the way through to Revelation All of these different authors from ancient history, remember ancient history, 3000 B.C. to 500 A.D., collaborating these events happened. So you have all of these witnesses. Basically, in the Bible, you have 40 witnesses to the events that are in the Bible. You read the Gospels. Why is there four Gospels? You ever thought about that? It's the same reason. Let's, let's have four authors that collaborate on the same information, not just one author. Where do you find that in any other ancient civilization? You don't find it. You find it in the Bible. And like I said, one of those gospel writers was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. His name was Luke, and he was probably the best historian of them all. So the Jews were one of the first people groups and perhaps the only people group that understood the importance of the collaboration by various authors to historical criticism. It was like they had some kind of inspiration to look to the future and say, you know what, if other people are going to believe this in the future, there better be some collaboration among the authors. I wonder who gave them that inspiration to do that. We do have the ability to fact check history in the Bible with ancient literature by other authors and artifacts that are outside the Bible. For example, the earliest non-Christian testimony to Jesus' existence is that of the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus who wrote in AD 37 to 100. He wasn't a Christian, but there's no question when you read his historical writings that he did not say that Jesus was a myth. He did not deny the existence of Jesus. Though some would dispute the uh, genuineness of much of, of uh, Josephus's writings, some saying it was embellished by an overzealous Christian scribe, which he wasn't. You know what it, what it comes out is that Josephus was writing as best he could based upon the information that he had. But he wasn't the only one that wrote about Jesus. You have the Jewish Babylonian Talmud. And I want you to know the folks that wrote that definitely would have loved to have discredited the existence of Jesus. But they did not do it in their Talmud. They said, <clears throat> they declared that Jesus existed and they referred to his miracles as magic. They didn't even deny his miracles happening. They just called it magic rather than works of God. There's all kinds of allusions to Christ in Romans history and Romans time. Pliny the governor of Beth. Uh, Bithynia wrote about Christianity and Christians and Jesus and never once did he go you know he really didn't live he really didn't exist the same could be said for the Roman historian uh, Tacitus Uh, Suetonius another popular Roman writer mentions Jesus and once again they're mentioning him as a historical figure that actually lived you know when the apostle Paul was trying to persuade King Agrippa to believe upon Jesus in Acts 26, 26, he said this, for the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. Isn't that incredible that he would say this to King Agrippa? None of these things have escaped your attention. In other words, he goes on to say, this was not done in a corner. It was not done in secret. Uh, Jesus wasn't going around with a few people doing what he did. He did what he did in front of everybody. It wasn't done in a corner. Let me close with this and uh, just let me say this and then I'll close. When it comes to textual criticism and historical criticism, the Bible is the most vetted ancient document in the history of the world there's not a there's it's been researched and researched and researched again there's greater collaboration by authors on the stories of the bible than any other ancient book of history so textual criticism and historical criticism would say yeah the bible the bible is reliable what we're reading today is if it's not Exactly, it's very close to what was written then. And yes, the stories in the Bible, they've been collaborated by a variety of different authors, both that are in the biblical uh, authorship, but also outside of the biblical authorship. Finally, if I was going to try to persuade you that the Bible is reliable, and we had another 30 minutes, which we don't, what I would turn to is the scientific criticisms and let me just leave you with this you know scientific criticism it means this is that you evaluate say a story in the Bible with your understanding of the rules of nature the laws of nature And if the story and the events that happen in the story were not in harmony with the laws of nature, then your conclusion would be that this must be fiction. It didn't really happen because it violates the laws of nature. Well, scientific measurement is based upon experimentation and observation. In other words, the way scientists come to conclude that this must be a law is by experimenting and then observation. Well, obviously, scientists cannot reproduce, they cannot reproduce the events that happened in the Bible. So how do you do experiments? How, how do you observe it? Well, what God did, I believe, what God did was He left one miracle that for future generations, every generation, even scientists by experiment and observation could say that's reliable. And do you know what it is? Prophecy. 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 what how do you explain all of these prophecies in the Bible that were fulfilled in other words the experiment is is you go and you read the prophecies like a good scientist should and then you go and you observe where the prophecies were fulfilled and based upon scientific reasoning you say how do i explain that you know a lot of times scientists will discover something and they know that it's it's reliable because every time they do the experiment it happens but they don't understand why well that's what you have when it comes to prophecy you look at the prophecies of the bible We often say around here there's 2500 prophecies in the bible and over 2000 of those prophecies have been fulfilled many of them were prophecies about the nation of israel and there's a whole list of those there's over 300 prophecies about the messiah that were fulfilled in the life of jesus so how in the world do you explain with a logical mind how do you explain away the fact that these prophecies were given at a particular period of time many times hundreds of years before the event was fulfilled, but then it was fulfilled. How do you explain that? The Bible, Bible is reliable. I'm so convinced that the Bible is reliable based upon the prophecies of the Bible uh, that I would be willing to die for my faith. Not based upon textual criticism, not based upon historical criticism, but based upon the scientific method of just evaluating the prophecies of the Bible. Now, you're going to hear some more about those prophecies next week and the week after that and the week after that because the things that we're going to be talking about were all prophesied by prophets long before they were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. I want to encourage you to come back and hear those sermons. Would you pray with me this morning? like i said this morning there was no way i was gonna be able to answer every question you might have about is the bible reliable we could do a whole series just on that one subject but i want to point you in a direction if you do not believe if you do not believe that the bible is reliable and you don't believe that jesus is the son of god i just want to point you in a direction and the first direction i want to point you is be intellectually honest Don't let what you currently believe deter you from changing you, changing what you believe based upon new information. And then be courageous, be courageous. Actually pursue the truth, pursue the facts, both from the Bible and from outside the Bible. Pursue the facts and then if you discover like I believe, that the Bible is reliable and that Jesus is the Son of God, decide to change what you believe and ultimately give your life to Jesus Christ. Present your life to him. I just want to challenge you this morning. Would you, right now, would you be willing to be intellectually honest? Father, I pray that through your spirit, you'll open our hearts to the truth The truth of who you are the truth of what you've done on our behalf by dying for our sins the truth that one day you're going to return again lord and you're going to gather those who have believed in you into your kingdom forever and ever lord i pray that you would just open all of our hearts to the truth that you have revealed to us lord through nature through history through your word and i ask this in jesus name amen we're going to end the service a little differently today because of our uh our uh, meet and greet with the pastor this morning we're going to sing a song